to another episode of I'm Socially Distancing With. Today we have Cheryl Martin, who uh, is a singer, a poet, a d- director, a writer, and a performer. Uh, hi, Cheryl. Hi, Gigi. Thanks Thank for having so much me. For being... Thank you. Thank you so much for being for being here with us. It's it's awesome to have you here. So, hi everyone. I'm I'm Juju. My pronouns are uh, they them, and I'm a youth worker at the Guy Trust, which is an LGBTQ plus uh, support network for young people up to the age of 25 in Cambridgeshire. And uh, today we have our uh, very own uh, Jack from the Kai Trust, who is going to interview uh, Ch- Cheryl. Hi, Jack. Thanks a lot. Hello, hello. Good to be here. Cool, cool. All right. So um, now uh, o- over to you, folks. So you can introduce yourself, saying your name and pronouns, and you can start the interview. Um... So, yeah, as Juju said, we'll do our names and pronouns and we'll do our silly question, which we always do any of our uh, groups or uh, one-to-one sessions. And I thought for today's silly question, uh, I'd ask, uh, if you had your own late night talk show, who would you invite as your first guest? Well, um, my name is Cheryl Martin and my pronouns are she, her, and I'm based uh, in Greater Manchester, just outside Manchester and Salford. And I'm a, a black middle-aged woman with long, <laughs> with uh, long dreads that are in a really orange and sort of purple head thing and wearing an orange uh, dress. And the first person I would have on my late night uh, show would probably be Billie Holiday. There's a, a movie that just came out called Billie, which mm-hmm. is about her life. And I listened to another podcast from the States uh, called Throughline on National Public Radio, which uh, was breaking down how Billy was the first victim of the war on drugs and how they went after her, persecuted her, mostly because of a famous song she sang um, called Strange Fruit, which was about Black people being lynched down South. And the FBI really wanted her to stop singing it, and she really wouldn't. And you know, she really walked the walk. She kept singing the song. They took away her cabaret license, which meant she couldn't perform anymore in New York City, which is where she, you know, mostly worked. And so she they gave her a really hard time. And it just so happens that Billy, I think that Billy was by, um, from my understanding. So uh, and she also, um, she's the first jazz singer I learned to sing with. So mm-hmm. when I was little, I used to put on, you know, Billie Holiday along with, you know, all the pop songs and everything else. Mm-hmm. But I learned how to sing jazz by singing along to Billie. So I would love to talk to her and find out where she got that strength from to stand mm-hmm. up to that kind of persecution. Because let's face it, we all need strength now. So yeah. my first person would be Billie Holiday. I feel like that's, that is such a strong and brilliant choice to start off any, I mean, any late night talk show. Like, that is incredible. And have you seen the movie? Would you recommend the movie? I haven't seen the movie yet because it just came out, but I'm going to try and see it this weekend online because, um, you know, it's online now. 
But yeah, yeah that's, that's definitely one that I'm going to try and see. Awesome. You have to let us know if it's any good, like if it's uh, a yeah. recommend yeah, because it look it looks incredible, and yeah, I think yeah. that's an absolutely perfect person. And uh, for any new listeners, how would you describe uh, what you do? Well, I mostly write. I started off as a writer, but also a singer. So the things I've done since I was like eight or nine years old are both sing and write poetry. And then from the poetry, I'm. I moved over to Manchester from Washington DC is where I'm from back way back in 1988. And so I've actually lived here about twice as long as I lived there. And over here, I ran into a group um, that was doing performance poetry. And from there, I got into writing plays. And from writing plays, I got into directing plays. And from there, I got into performing my own solo shows. So that's pretty much what I do. Um, when I'm directing, uh, when I'm directing, it's almost always somebody else's work. Um, mm. you can't, I can't direct myself. But when I do solo shows, um, that's basically about my own uh, mental health issues because mm. I grew up uh, with a personality disorder and severe depression and had a bit of a rough time with all that. And uh, I finally decided I would talk about it because I would do shows about it because I find it very difficult to talk about. Mm -hmm. And so where did that like confidence to put all of that on stage sort of come from? Because as you, as you said, like, it's very difficult to talk about that, that in a one-on-one -on -one sort of situation, but then to, yeah, put that into performance poetry in front of a stage and an audience. Where did that sort of confidence and how do you sort of manage that? Well, when I was, when I was a kid, um, uh, being a, a black American kid, um, I sort of did the stereotype of being in a gospel choir, only I was a Catholic back then. So it was like a Catholic gospel <laughs> choir. So, um, so, and so I started performing with them when I was about, I guess, 16 or 17. And then I kept performing in terms of singing from then on, you know, with different bands, you know, never anything famous, but you know, a lot of jazz bands performing in pubs when I got over here and things like that. And I think, you know, when you're the singer in a band, you're the front person. So you're the one up front, you have to talk about the songs and introduce them. And so you have to get used to talking to your audience and feeling comfortable. And I think that that fed into, I, I, I lucked in with a, a group of performance poets. I don't know if any of you know someone called Lem Sisse, um, he actually, he's a, he's a black performance poet, now chancellor of Manchester University and has nice. stuff on TV and stuff. Like he had a show on the BBC last month or something like that. But anyway, um, when I met him, he was running a group of black and Asian, mostly performance poets um, that was called Identity Workshop, which is still going all these years later. And that's when I started actually performing. And so at first I had confidence because I was with my mates and, mm. you know, we would go out in like a big bunch of 10, you know, get in a bus and go to a library and <laughs> do a reading. Um, and so you were only doing five minutes. So you only had to have five minutes worth of courage. And, but after that, that grew. And, you know, I did my own performances where you, and see, if you do performance poetry, you don't have lighting, you don't have music, you don't mm -hmm. have a costume, 
You don't have anything but you. And so you've got the nerve to sit there and think, yeah, you should pay money to listen to me talk about myself for an hour. And, and actually doing a show is easier than that because you do have lighting and music and you know a costume and somebody who directed you and told you how to move around and you know all that kind of stuff so and you have a team when you do theater usually you know even though i do solo shows sometimes i still go out with a stage manager so when you're creating the show there's a whole team around and then when i go out there might still be somebody with me so it's um that that helps with the confidence yeah, completely. And and I know we've had um, other like performance poets say like very similar things. The fact that when you're performing poetry, you're given yeah your time slot, or there is a set amount of time, and that's when people have to listen to you. And and, it, and there's some sort of um, sort of like riveting power knowing that they have to sort of listen to you, or they have to at least be in the same space with you for that amount of time while you perform. Um, which I think is really powerful. Actually, I think a lot of people don't really recognize when they look at sort of performance poetry i think it's um it is i guess when you put it that way i never thought of it as powerful but mm -hmm. i suppose it is and what you learn is how to read your audience and you're actually still interacting with them so it used to be um when i did more performance poetry gigs that i would know that a poem i wrote was bad mm -hmm. because i wouldn't read it out loud to an audience <laughs> You would come like this new poem and you'd be like, oh no, I can't read that. And then we just go to the bottom. And mm -hmm. if I did like that three times, I would just dump that poem and know that it didn't really make the cut. Because um, the thing is, you can see the audience and they can definitely see you. And you can see when you've actually got their attention or when you're losing their attention and stuff like that. And I used to cheat by singing. So I'd sing a couple songs. People always like it when you sing and it puts them in a good mood. Yeah. That's, that's a really good technique actually, like singing as well, just using it as a way of seeing, yeah, uplifting people, but also, yeah, just testing the waters. And like, has, has singing been incorporated into your um, solo shows? Do you do a lot of singing oh, yeah. with those pieces? Yeah, the songs are always in there and, mm. um, because some of the material I do is actually very triggering. So mm. just a warning, it is very triggering um, because it deals with self-harm and issues of things that I went through. Um, I, I actually use the songs to calm myself back down and mm. because I need a space. So it sometimes comes in a very intense moment um, and that's actually so that I can recover and you know get my get my bearings back and the audience also needs space to breathe if you're and the shows are also funny i should say they're not you know it's funny and you cry and it's funny and you cry so it's it's like that and then i sing and i'll dance a little bit and um, but that's as much to give that's really to give me a rest so that i can get myself all the way through but the audience also gets to rest and you know, get something that's easier to easier to deal with. Mm -hmm. And you, you said about yeah how that's more 
yeah, of, 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 uh, it's a rest for you as a performer, like especially when looking at such personal sort of topic topics and performing on stage. Um, have you found that, like any other techniques, and like have you got any tips for people who might want to try? I guess to a degree, like autobiographical work or work that is a personal to them. How they keep that balance of making sure to look after themselves while performing and creating work. Well, like I said, I learned how to take care of myself by putting in the songs. Or there's one there's one where I pass around cards. Um, I had a I had a bespoke deck made, so I mm -hmm. give out these cards that have images that have to do with things in my life, and mm -hmm. they don't realize it at the point I give it out. But every single one of those images is going to come up later in the show, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I know a lot of people play games with the audience. You mm -hmm. know, things as silly as passing balloons around, or They'll get members. Um, I don't know if you've seen Travis Alabanza, if you've seen their show, Burgers. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so, what they do in Burgers is they get a person up from the audience and then they become part of the whole show. And, um, but I know a lot of people will get someone up from the audience for just a little bit of time, um, or they'll have the audience play a game. Um, there's another show that I co wrote with um, uh, a gay guy named Darren Pritchard, who does Vogue, he's a big Vogue house mother. I don't know if you know the Vogue dance sort of, if you've seen Pose on BBC Two, that's like around the, the origins of Voguing. Mm -hmm. And so we did a show called Rent Party that was basically about black queer lives and in Red Party, we play a lot of games. They play a limbo dance where they have to dance under the limbo. You know, we do a pass the parcel. Um, oh, in another one of my, and in that show, in another show, you know, pass around drinks. So in mm -hmm. one of my shows, I actually pass around a cocktail, a little cocktail. And so there's lots of things you can do to give yourself space and mm -hmm. to help the audience as well. Mm. I think that's definitely something I've not thought of just personally, but also, yeah, that incorporating of games as a way of doing it, like as a way of, yeah, keeping that a, that room check with the audience and, and the people in the space. Also, yeah, actually having a bit of a breather for yourself as a performer, um, which is really important. It's, it's something I've definitely never um, looked at, but it's so obvious that that should be there at some point in, in shows like that. It really works. And um, like I said, it's, it's a bit of fun for you um, and it's fun for the audience and mm. the audience feel more engaged with you as the performer. And basically your audience usually will do anything as long as you're not mean to them. And, um, and I, I really love those games. It's just because you want to have fun, you know, mm. and Red Party as well. It's dealing with the realities of being black and queer and poor in austerity Britain. So mm -hmm. some of the stories are really a bit, you know, go there. But, mm -hmm. uh, and so having these fun things in between, like there's people singing, there's people dancing. And like I said, there's several games. Mm -hmm. So you put all that together. It's like a different kind of emotional journey for the mm -hmm. audience and for you. Yeah, completely. And you sort of mentioned earlier, like your work with sort of directing other people's shows. What's it like being a director and, and what sort of um, challenges do you often have to overcome as a director? Um, I think 
I think for, oh, you know what? I really like directing. I like, I like directing actually a lot more than writing. It's easier for me because it's somebody, because I'm not dealing with my own trauma anymore. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, dealing with somebody yeah. else's story and helping them make something beautiful out of that. And mm -hmm. uh, I was just working with um, a new disabled writer today. And what mm -hmm. I loved about it was just listening to her talk about her life and the different things that she wants to get into plays later on. And it was all stuff I've never seen. And it was all stuff that you, even though it's from her particular perspective, you know, you can see exactly how that would work for an audience. And um, I guess I, I don't tell directors or writers what to do. I mean, I'm, I don't tell actors. I don't tell actors or writers what to do because I, I feel like it's my job to make them look good. And that is my job as a director. I'm there to make the writers and the actors look really, really good. And so I'm there to make the actors feel safe. And that means that I have to know about the play. I have to have done all the research. I have to have prepared. Um, I have to sort of know what every line sort of means, but I never tell them any of that. And instead, I just set them going. And then I ask them, why did you make that choice? Why did you do that? And that actually leaves them free to come up with what they want to do. Because they're actors, I'm not. They're going to come up with better ideas about how to act than I am. What mm -hmm. I'm good at is knowing when it's working. You know, I know when what they're doing really works with the script. And sorry for that sound. I um, I really know, and I'm good at, at looking at things and seeing when they look good and making mm -hmm. them look better. And mm -hmm. I, it's my job to hire a good lighting designer or mm -hmm. a good set designer. And then again, I don't tell them what to do. If they're good and I chose well, then they're mm -hmm. gonna come up with better ideas than I can. So it's mm -hmm. almost like being like a ringmaster or I don't know, I somebody who, who is at the center, but what I'm doing is basically watching what everybody else does and keep all the plates up in the air. You know, if I was a juggler, so I'm supposed to keep all the plates up in the air and make sure that they spin and look good. Um, and that's it really. So you're really sort of making it easy for everybody else to shine. And then you get a really nice production. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely, feel that a lot of people sort of miss out that point that bit for the for a director um and i feel like a lot of people are like oh the director just tells people what to do but from, yeah. from what you said and I completely yeah agree like it's actually you're just there yeah to make them look good you're juggling all those various different different parts of it um and giving them that sort of um creative space to yeah to then take it and just roll with it and you're sort of almost like um would you say you're almost like a, not a mini audience member, but like you're sort of seeing it through that yeah. lens of an audience member? Yeah, you should be thinking, you should be looking at it like an audience member. Mm -hmm. And for, for instance, back in the day when we were actually in a theater, in a studio or something, <laughs> you know, when you get towards the end, you really need to sit uh, from different angles in the audience to make sure that it looks good from every angle. Because everybody mm -hmm. in that audience paid their money and they all deserve to have a good view and it should look good from all views 
And, um, and I do think well, the other thing is to make the writer and the actors feel safe because the mm -hmm. actors will only, you need them to experiment and take risks and you know try that thing that seems ridiculous but actually is going to look really good when you do it. And before that they will do that, you need to make them feel like they, like you said, give them that space. And, mm -hmm. and that's that they have to know, they have to feel that I, I can back them up, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that I've given permission. Uh, there are some directors that walk in and they've already blocked the whole show. So they know mm -hmm. where they want everyone to move. And when you do that, it doesn't mean it's a bad show, but it has a different energy to when mm -hmm. the actors decided where they're going to move and they're moving for a reason so it's like the if, if you see somebody walk across the the audience feels this as well if i tell you to walk across the stage and you do it of course you did it whatever but if um if i i say do what you want to do and then you walk across the stage because you have a reason you have come up with a reason in your mind why you should walk across that stage it looks and feels different. And that sounds ridiculous, but believe me, it does. And um, when somebody has come up with their own reason why they're doing this, it just feels different. And that actor feels different as well. And the audience gets the benefit of all that. Yeah, and also it's that classic sort of, um, yeah, walking with purpose or like doing an action with purpose and, and reason. And yeah, like you said, like, yeah, the difference between telling someone to do it and people naturally sort of doing it. I agree there's a complete difference. And I guess also doing it that way, there's a big change in sort of power dynamics between exactly. yeah, the, the actors. Whereas, yeah, if someone came in and blocked it all out, it's a completely different dynamic compared to letting the actors think it through. And when you let the actors think it through, and they realize that you're really going to let them come up with what they want to come up with. They just give you a totally different kind of performance. Mm -hmm. It's, mm -hmm. it's, um, I just don't know how else to say it, except the energy totally changes. Mm -hmm. I, um, because, uh, you know, I'm a director. It's going to say director on it no matter what. I don't, you know, I don't need control. I need mm -hmm. a good play. And so, um, I think that you get better results from people when you don't try and control them. Yeah, no, completely. And we sort of mentioned audiences. Have there, has there ever been any sort of, um, whether you've taken shows that you've directed or shows that you've performed or when you did performance poetry, have there been, ever been any unexpected reactions from audience members or, or any sort of challenges that have come about from audience members? I remember when I was first learning how to direct, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it was this course, a national course that the Arts Council is running for new and emerging Black and Asian theater directors. And I chose this play by a really famous um, American playwright called Susan Laurie Parks. You know, she's won the Pulitzer Prize and all that kind of stuff. And it was called Venus. And it was about the Venus Hottentot. Do you know the, about the no, Venus? No, no. Okay, so you know how the museums have a lot of stolen loot. They used mm. to also have the bones of real people. And yeah, your mouth just oh. fell open. But it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, and one of and in Paris in the Museum of Man mm. of Mankind, they had the bones of the Venus Hottentot. 
And she was a woman from South Africa that had been brought over to England and Par to London and Paris, London and Paris, I think, in around from 1815 to 1820, I think, around mm -hmm. that time. And she was exhibited in freak shows because they felt that she had an inordinately big behind. And she was from, I think it's the oldest human tribe that still exists continuously. And they had a little apron in front of their vagina, basically. And so she was exhibited so that people could see those things, her big behind and her, yeah. And she died in Paris and they put her bones in a museum. And it was still there in the, it was still there in the early 2000s. And I went over because I wanted, I was interested in the story. And they told me that she wasn't there, but she was. And they only gave her back when Nelson Mandela asked for her. So I would have to check my dates, but I know mm -hmm. that Nelson Mandela, her name was Sarah Bartman. Um, mm -hmm. And he, Nelson Mandela had to rescue that woman's bones so that she could be given a real burial. So mm -hmm. Susan Laurie Parks did a play about her and the, the play was a bit in your face. Mm -hmm. And the way that I did it was really in your face. I did a little extract and you know, the wife, the, there was an older person, um, anyway, somebody mm -hmm. I knew, an older lady, generation above me, she mm -hmm. walked out, man. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh yeah, she walked out. And I was like, oh my God, so that really worked. You know, mm -hmm. it was meant to be in your face. It was very uncomfortable. And because it was, um, it was, it was forcing you to look at what was done to this woman by exhibiting mm -hmm. her as a freak. And, yeah. and so I made that really in your face mm -hmm. and she walked right out. And I was just like, wow. I didn't even know people still walked out of stuff. And, um, and, I was, and so I, I was like, hmm, that's part of what made me know that maybe I should be a director. The, mm -hmm. the person who became my mentor said after that, you should be a director. <laughs> yeah, because that that clearly like hit, hit something with that audience member who then decided to talk. And, and like you said, like clearly your point worked by it being so in your face about it. And that story is incredible. Like I'm definitely gonna have to like look like look into the, that and have the play is called Venus mm. by Susan Laurie Parks. But if mm. you look up the Venus Hottentot or the Hottentot Venus, mm. then you'll find her story. Because I might have got some of the dates wrong just now. I apologize for that. But um, it was really, that really happened. Wow. And, and Nelson Mandela had to rescue that woman's bones. Yeah. Gosh. gosh she's, not, she's not the only person that happened to. Hmm. I did another story when I was working, when I was writing radio plays. Um, and it was about a man called Otabenga, who was from a group in. Um, what's now the you know Democratic Republic of, of Congo, mm -hmm. and they were called pygmies. They're not really pygmies. Um, mm -hmm. I can't think of the proper name for what they are right now. Again, I apologize. I apologize. But his name Ota Benga, O T A B E N G A, and the play I wrote was called Don't Feed the Animals, 
Mm -hmm. And it was because, again, there was this person who went and brought him over from the Congo to, or from, from, well, from what's now DRC, brought mm -hmm. him over to be in uh, the St. Louis World's Fair. And there's a Judy Garland movie called Meet Me in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And in that, and you know, that's, I love that movie, mm -hmm. but that World's Fair had an exhibit that was supposed to be basically about the ascent of man. So what they had were all these, basically that white Caucasians are the top of mm -hmm. evolution and all these other different kinds of people are going down towards the monkeys. Mm -hmm. And that's what they wanted him for. And they had a lot of different kinds of people. They had mm -hmm. Inuit people, they had, um, you know, just lots of different kinds of people that they put in this terrible exhibit at the St. Louis World's Fair. And then he didn't manage to get back to Africa. And instead this same guy took him to, um, I think it was the Bronx Zoo, stuck him in a cage with a monkey and called him the missing link. Called him the missing link. And then um, African-American pastors, people who ran churches in New York City, went and got that stopped and rescued him from that but he never he he i don't know he didn't quite recover so yeah. didn't come to a good end but yeah. uh so that play was called don't feed the animals mm -hmm. and again that's a true story mm, yeah and, and it's just yeah and you're, you're talking about there's there's there probably hundreds and hundreds of stories like that or varying different stories across all sorts of institutions. And I think it's really incredible that theatre and art is one way of like representing that and really telling these stories. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, like having that space where an audience has to, has to sit and listen or they've paid to sit and listen and how it's really important that those stories are put on stage or put in a space where people can, can learn from them. Yeah. yeah, and it's um, and I guess especially when I was starting off writing, I really felt like when I was doing those BBC radio plays, I felt like that was the kind of stuff I needed to do and make mm. people realize this is like history, but it was hidden history. So mm. you know, I did a lot of African American history, and um, just this past Sunday, Steve McQueen, who's black and British. And of yeah. course, did years a slave and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. He's doing a series of things um, called small acts, mm -hmm. which are about Black British hidden history. Well, not hidden, just not mm -hmm. talked about. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking. I'm looking forward to those. They look absolutely incredible. Like, well, the first one. The first one's already on iPlayer because it was on Sunday. Nice. <laughs> adding that to my list of, of yeah. Of, I know, the ever, ever increasing list of things yeah. that you've got to watch. Um, <laughs> mine's really long as well. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not even just watching, it's like also the book lists and all the various other lists of, yeah, all the media things like coming out. Um, at the beginning of lockdown, I thought I was going to do all this stuff and that so mm -hmm. didn't happen. <laughs> I was gonna say, like with lockdown, yeah. Were, were there any um, uh, sto stories or books or films that you got into during that sort of first lockdown? Oh, I'm sort of embarrassed to say the kind of stuff that I watched. Was there? There was a okay. There was a show called Lovecraft Country, 
that mm -hmm. was, um, you know, Jordan, uh, is it Jordan Peele? Yeah. The guy yeah. who did Get Out, you know. Yeah. Um, and so he, he executive produced this crazy, crazy, crazy <laughs> show called Lovecraft Country. And I caught it on Now TV, because I guess it was on Sky over here. I think it was HBO. Oh my goodness. So there was this, there was a, a horror writer called H.P. Lovecraft, mm -hmm. who evidently was virulently racist. Mm -hmm. And what, what Jordan Peele did was he decided to appropriate that man's sort of stories and marry it up with a story that's set in the segregated 1950s US. So it's not just the South that was segregated, it was really everywhere. And mm -hmm. so have these stories that are based on, again, reality, like mm -hmm. those two I was just telling you, but they're married to incredible, um, incredibly strange and out there and out of its mind horror stories. Mm -hmm. And it does really work. Um, and it's a very strange thing, but I, I but you know, sort of, um, a lot of folks back home in the States were talking and talking. So I felt like I had to watch this one and I did. And it's, and I'm glad I did. It's very, very strange. And mm -hmm. then I watched um, just this, just this weekend, I watched something called Rocks, which is a black, a very small black British movie. So guys, that's out there. It's on, I think it's on Netflix. Uh, is it on Netflix? I think it's on Netflix. Mm -hmm. um, if you have Netflix and there's somebody that's got it. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, Netflix is doing a really cheap deal. I'm not, I'm not shilling for them, but <laughs> if there's stuff you want to catch up, there's some sort of cheap deal they've got on before Christmas, if there's mm -hmm. things you want to see on there. And um, it was about a Black British teenage girl whose mother had, again, mental health problems and disappeared, um, not for the first time. And she left the girl who was 15 with like her six-year-old brother. And she just left them and didn't really leave enough money or anything. And so you watch them over a few days as they're trying to survive. And the girl just keeps getting into more and more nearly bad trouble, trying mm -hmm. to stay away from social services. And the electricity goes off in their flat. And, um, but she has a really tight group of friends who are, you know, a mixed, you know, one Somalian, you know, one's white, a couple are black, but they're very tight. And when she can't stay in her house anymore, she goes to her friends and then she fights with one friend. And then finally another friend calls social services to ask what to do. And social mm. services comes, gets them. I'm not gonna tell you anymore if you're gonna watch the show. It's actually quite beautiful. And it's very it's very real. You almost mm. feel like it's a documentary. Mm. Um, so that was great. Sounds those movies sound incredible. Like, yeah, again, adding it to my ever-growing list for sure. And yeah, and I I I agree with you. I love it when like the characters or the writing is so um I don't know if the word believable is what I'm looking for, but like when they're so human and so relatable that yeah, you you really sort of connect with the characters or or really feel their situation. 
Yeah, it's like the with my bestie, we decided to watch a movie every Saturday night. So this was her choice. And it was just so good. It really was. And you just, like you said, it was relatable. And it's very clever because you really sympathize with her. She doesn't make all good choices, but then she is only 15 years old and on her own and trying to trying to take care of her brother and it just and you just feel so much for them and it's very simple um it's really and you just feel that these are real you feel like these are real people yeah and um there's nothing about it that felt false at all awesome awesome and sort of over sort of lockdown did your creative process change at all um did you like discover any new yeah, creative avenues or discover any new techniques that really worked for you? Uh, that's interesting. I, I wish I could say I found, well, did I find new techniques? I mean, um, I am connected to some groups of other queer Black people who are mm -hmm. creative. So I run a queer Black book club and, and reading the books um, is always good. And mm -hmm. we, wrote, we read one by a... Um, a black queer guy named Dean Ada from London, and it's called Flamingo. Black Flamingo. So that's yeah. the last one we read, which we mm -hmm. all loved. And it's mm -hmm. weird when everybody loves the book because you know you're supposed to argue, but mm -hmm. we had a little talk about just how good that book was, and again, you know how you felt for the character, mm -hmm. and um, and then there's also a group I, I ran for black queer writers uh, called Notes on a Mic Drop. And um, I run a festival in Manchester that's actually, all of us are, are mostly black and gay as well, you know, <laughs> the LGBTQIA plus group. Um, there's uh, three of us who are staff and then four who are who are our um, board. And of the mm -hmm. board, we have one token straight black woman and, uh, and we only have one white lesbian so it's mm -hmm. mostly black and queer mm -hmm. and and so i was uh and so for our festival even though we don't bill ourselves as being black and queer this year we were 80 percent black and queer mm -hmm. and so, yeah so it was like um we had people talking about mm -hmm. you, you know we had speakers we had um oh my gosh we just and people were making films and uh, we had somebody did a garden party that they filmed on a Sunday, sunny Sunday afternoon. Mm -hmm. And it was three hours long. And I thought nobody's going to watch this. But <laughs> their numbers climbed. It just climbed constant. They even kept climbing after Angela Davis and Jackie Kay had a counter event. And our numbers still climbed all the way into not only to the end of the three hours but some mm. people were still trying to join after yeah. that so and it was it was just so lovely it was like so talented we had mm. travis alabanza do our launch and mm. you know how good they are and um, a guy named topher campbell who did a uh, our keynote and we just it was just it was just like bathing and in, in mm. creativity and positivity and seeing everybody do all this wonderful work. And that really did lift my spirits. That made me feel good. Oh, 
Oh, and what festival was that? I, I missed the name. It's called, Black, called Black Gold Arts. Oh, um, and what's sort of the future for it? Like, wh wh where do you sort of see sort of festivals well, going? Right in? now, we're we're project grant funded, but we're uh, we were supposed to take over a gallery in Manchester called the Whitworth Gallery in August, and of course mm -hmm. that. But we still have the money in theory for that. And so right now we're trying to figure out, do we try to do it in August, 2021, or do we push it into summer 2022? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, everybody talking about the vaccines, vaccines sound great, yay! I will be in line to get mine. However, I'm not sure when that's gonna happen. Yeah. And I have a feeling we're gonna have to push it to 2022. Mm. Yeah, yeah, a lot of uncertainty around that, and just yeah, and even just saying like 2021 just feels e eons away. Like, but obviously in reality, it's not there, eons so. away. It's less than two months away now. Exactly. But, um, like that festival I was talking about, we decided to do it all virtual, mm. and it was really fun. It was good. So yeah. if we do kick the other one into the long grass again, then. Mm. But I think that we're going to keep one thing we're talking about creativity. One thing I realized over this summer is that, you know, there's a lot of stuff that was pretty inaccessible before and really hard, you know, not to mention money, not to mention transport, not to mention if you're if like one of our artists had a baby in August and that whole thing about, you know, what are you going to do with the kids, you know, trauma. So doing a virtual festival meant we were able to get loads of people from all over and loads and we and we said um you know you could pay for your ticket or just don't pay it was a donation thing so mm -hmm. you could go for nothing and we actually made more money from tickets on this festival because of the donations than mm -hmm. we ever have before as well mm -hmm. so in every way it worked better for us mm -hmm. and i think that we're going to include a virtual element to all our future festivals to cater for you know both the artists who can't come and you know the other people who can't make it and um and i want to really think about how to make that different because i think some people are getting you know zoom fatigue and um they, you know and just tired of doing stuff online so you have to figure out what are you going to do that's going to make people want to do your thing but what we found was we had audiences. That wasn't the problem. Mm -hmm. And the garden party thing, which I thought no one's gonna watch for three hours, I was so wrong. Mm -hmm. And it, because it was really just chilled. And you know, it was just, just a bunch of mostly very young queer people playing music, reading, you know, reading their poetry, hanging out in the garden, doing um, Qigong and um, a Vogue workshop as well. And, you know, it was just very laid back and really enjoyable. Oh, and we had a little dance off with two people as well. So it was just, you know, again, just fun. So honestly sounds incredible. And like, yeah, I'm like, I, I want to book on for the next one. Like, that sounds like incredible. Well, and I, I hope I, we'll let you know when our next one is on. Please, please do. And I, I, I totally get with you the whole like, yeah, suddenly moving online. Well, you sort of miss that audience interaction and that find that energy. It does eliminate a lot of the a lot of the barriers that a lot of people said were were big problems or we couldn't change. But actually, you know, we can 
like you said, remove geography or like altogether. And I think there's also an element for an audience. They can watch something and not ignore it in the background, but it's something they can have in sort of in their own setting and in their own sort of place, rather than having all those rules sort of attached to theatre and, and, and certain places. Um, and and it's especially the thing about what everybody said they couldn't do or couldn't be done. Mm -hmm. And it's just not true. Yes, you can do it. Yes, it can be done. Or even just, you know, look at the government and, um, you know, what they're doing about the money. They mm -hmm. always said they couldn't do this and they couldn't do that. And on a dime, suddenly, you know, mm -hmm. they're paying furloughs, you know, mm -hmm. they're paying all this other stuff. So none of that was true. Yeah, no, completely, completely. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I love this train of conversation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump over um, and just quickly talk about um, self care because quite a lot of people come on and talk about sort of self care, um, but also community care is really important in the fact of taking care of each other. I was wondering, um, what's your sort of experience of self care and community care, and if you had sort of any, any, any tips for people out there? Well, I guess the the tips for self care for me. Um, mm -hmm. It really is <laughs> drinking a little bit less alcohol, <laughs> and um, and uh, because alcohol actually does bring on depression. You know, mm -hmm. you sort of drink because you're depressed, but then it's going to make you depressed because you're drinking. So mm -hmm. you know, you need to keep that. Not not maybe you don't have to cut it out altogether, but mm -hmm. you don't have to do. You don't have to drink to excess, um, which sounds boring, but it's actually really true. If you yeah. like, uh, I did. I had to do Edinburgh, mm -hmm. so this is probably the high. The, obviously not this year. Last summer, I had to do it every single day, and I did it with that show that was so um, difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and that show makes me cry every time I do it. So mm -hmm. I had to do that every day of the Edinburgh Festival. Yeah. And the way that I got through was that I did not hang out in the gardens and drink with everybody at night. I just went back, had a decent meal. I would mm -hmm. go out during the day with, there were a lot of friends from Manchester up there. So I'd hang out with my friends, go see other people's shows, not hang out in the gardens drinking until three in the morning. And that's how I got through. Mm -hmm. And um, a little of that is how I'm getting through now. Um, exercising is for real. Endorphins are real. They really yeah. help. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, and like I said, Zoom is a Zoom makes you tired, mm -hmm. but um, because I'm sheltering on my own, I'm single, and uh, because mm -hmm. I'm diabetic and asthmatic, so I can't run around right mm -hmm. now. And like I said, I'm zooming with my best mate on Saturday nights, so we watch a movie, and that lasts for around four hours in the end because we chat, chat, chat. And then we watch the movie and then we chat, chat, chat. Um, and then there are little groups of other artists and things um, who that have people in them that I've known for years. So there's like one group of black performance artists, <laughs> small group, and we meet every Wednesday, whether we have anything to say or not. Mm -hmm. um, I, I take classes, especially singing classes, because I hardly ever get, ever get a chance to do that. And it's mm. really, you know, chill out and just, you know, 
like she's doing basically Indian sort of techniques. Um, and so I don't know anything about any of that. So that's all fun. And, um, and like I said, I have, you know, my Black Career Book Club, that helps. Um, and then what else really helps? Those are the things that help. Oh, <laughs> um, I don't usually go on very much about religion or anything, but I go to Quaker meetings, which um, in this country, that's silent. So it's almost like mindfulness that you sit there and people only talk if they have something to say. And it's just so restful. And mm -hmm. actually they have been incredibly supportive the whole time, you know, like calling me, making sure I'm okay because they know I'm on my own. And we had a, a book club for them as well that was about decision-making and, you know, and it was, and so those, those things have been really, really helpful. Yeah, they, they all sound great. And I, I think when you were talking about sort of the mindfulness that the, the, Quaker meet, the Quaker meetings have and that, yeah, only speaking if you need to speak sort of thing, I think that's, I feel a lot of people have had similar moments where they've, you know, this is the first time they've really had time to just sort of sit and just listen to themselves and just, yeah not feeling they have to go out and do stuff or rush to go to a meeting or to a gig um and actually they've had time to yeah just sort of sit and really just have a moment of just what do i need right now what do i not need um i know one of our artists saying this is the first time they've had lots of sleep for a long time of just being able to really just sort of listen to themselves and i guess it's also thinking about um, the, the other group that's been really supportive, I remember I was talking about identity workshop, the workshop I got in, that's still going and I now work part time for the group that runs that. And we have team meetings every other week. And again, that's a, like this week, um, you know, there's a colleague who needs a lot of support. And so we just stopped the meeting so that she could get her support. and. And it's just sometimes just knowing the support is there. Um, I went to a, a meeting again, meeting, meeting, meeting. This was a group of um, of women artists who were survivors of childhood sexual abuse. I'm sorry if that's triggering. You might want to warn your people, but um, sexual and emotional abuse. And that meeting as well. At first, I was like, hmm. Not sure I really want to do this, but mm -hmm. there was a counselor who was there and that meeting in the end felt very healing as well, because it's again, it's something that we don't talk about. And there's something about being with other people who've gone through some of the same things you have mm -hmm. that means you can relax yeah. and actually be honest. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask a slightly philosophical question, if that's okay, if we've reached the moment of philosophical. Um, so if you could talk to a younger version of yourself right now, what age would that be and what advice would you give? I think I'd want to catch me when I was 18 because mm -hmm. I was very ill. And so all the decisions I made were in response to being quite depressed. Mm -hmm. um, really badly depressed and not getting any kind of treatment for that, really. Um, 
And I think I would tell, I would tell my 18 year old self not to go to the uni I actually went to and that she should run to a teaching hospital and get some treatment for her depression. And there was a school out in Washington state or was it Oregon called Reed that didn't give grades and had this really sort of hippie you know, philosophy. They said they give you grades when you were leaving because everybody expected grades, but that's not really what they did. And I think I missed, either I would go to Reed with the hippies mm -hmm. or I'd go to Bryn Mawr, which was an all women's college. And at Bryn Mawr, I would have realized a lot younger that I was lesbian. And I would have come out, you know, in my you know late teens or twenties, when it would have been a lot better if I had, if I had known what I was, and um, or just realized it. Uh, I would give that advice, but number one would be to go get some treatment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. in the states they you, they have. Teaching hospitals, I was from DC, Washington, DC, mm -hmm. and you have a lot of teaching hospitals around there. And mm -hmm. in the States, because you know, you have to pay for all your health care. And um, health care for mental health is usually not covered for very long by insurance, mm -hmm. even if you've got it. So mm -hmm. the teaching hospitals will have what they call a sliding scale. So mm -hmm. if you, if normally people pay $200 an hour and you can only afford a fiver, then you pay your fiver and you mm -hmm. still get treated. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have been able to do that. Mm, yeah, no, I can, I can, can, I can't even imagine how like difficult it is in that situation, um, for sure. But I think, yeah, as you said, just sort of making that first step and taking that first step um, is, yeah, is, is sort of the big hurdle or one of the big hurdles to really overcome. Um, I've got one final question. We're near the end of our uh, end of our chit chat. Um, and my final question was: um, How can viewers, how can listeners, find out more about your work? This is the bit where you get to plug yourself. Oh, okay. So, um, if you want to find out more about the festival, you can find the festival at um, http: colon mm -hmm double slash double slash blackgoldarts.co.uk so if you type in blackgoldarts.co.uk i'm sure it will come up um my twitter is at cheryl alaska but i will confess that i'm not brilliant at twitter and um my my um website is cherylmartin.net and i'll just make sure that that's actually it uh but i'm pretty sure that is yeah, www.cherylmartin.net. Sorry for that little sound. <laughs> and um, you can see, you can a lot of links to a lot of stuff I've done will be there. And if I'm doing anything new, I'll I'll always put it on Twitter. So that's at Cheryl C H E R Y L A L A S K A. And the reason why it's Alaska is the show that I was talking about with the cards. Mm. My first solo show was called Alaska. Nice, nice. 
Awesome. And yeah, no doubt we'll have links in the description for the yeah for the order, and we will tag you in in in, in the podcast. Well, thank yeah. you. Well, thank you. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Jack. And thank the, you, Juju. Thank you. I'll hand it over back to Juju. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thanks a lot. It was it was awesome. And um, yeah, I just have uh, a final question for you. Um, yeah, whether you have any final thoughts that that you would like to leave us with uh, for tonight? I guess it's like right now with everybody in lockdown and some people not able to go out. Um, I know a lot of us feel cut off from our support systems and our communities, um, especially us LGBTQIA plus folks, you know, really my notes on a mic drop, you know, that, that queer writers, it was so much fun. The workshops, you know, people would bring their dinner and we, you know, it was a real social event um, once a week. And, you know, it's been, it's hard losing that, but um, I would just encourage people to find their folks online and, you know, Zooming isn't always work, you know, it can be play. <laughs> absolutely that that is that is wonderful thank you so much all right so um it's time for us to say goodbye now uh so again uh thank you cheryl uh, and thank you jack uh, uh, and thanks everyone for listening uh and uh we'll We'll see you next week for another episode of I Am Socially Distancing With by the Kai Trust. See you all. Well, thank <laughs> Bye. you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.